Welcome to Raising the Bar, the one and only podcast that centers the lives and experiences of women of color while discussing legal issues and policies. We aim to inform, educate, and provide concrete tools to empower, expand, and raise the bar for our communities and ourselves. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Welcome back to Raising the Bar with Iman. Uh, I miss y'all so much. Um, thank you for listening. Um, just really quickly, let's get some stuff out the way. I am Iman, your host for Raising the Bar. Our website is www.rtbpodcast.com. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at one RTB Podcast. How are y'all? Um, I know it's been a while. Uh, but I'm back, and I'm back with a very important episode. Today, we're going to talk about, I had a trip. I, I had the very, very fortunate experience to um, to attend the conference, Data for Black Lives, in January at MIT. And I wanted to do a recap on a lot of the things that I learned that I was not aware of, that I thought that everyone should be aware of. So this episode is going to be a little different. Um, It is extremely informative. There are going to be a lot of documents and links that I'll refer to, and I'll make sure I put them in the show notes. But before we begin, definitely want to do the affirmation or the positive thought for this episode. And this is not so much an affirmation, but this is something that helped me recently. And I am telling everyone about this IG account because it's so helpful. So recently, the holistic psychologist and the IG account is the dot holistic, H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C dot psychologist, um, had a great, she was answering questions. And one question was how to motivate yourself to do the work when you're in the pit of despair with desperation, depression, I'm sorry, not desperation. And, you know, while I'm definitely, um, fortunately, I wouldn't consider myself depressed right now, but I definitely had issues with um, motivating myself and, and, and with just um, doing the things I knew that I, I knew that needed to be done. I felt like Recently, I felt like I was just doing, you know, taking care of my child, going to work. And, you know, I kind of have like two jobs on top of, you know, that. And I wasn't really focusing on this one, the podcast, things that brought me joy. I wasn't focusing on things that would take me to the next level like I was maybe a few months ago. And so I was really having an issue with motivating myself and I was really anxious. And and so I think her answer to this question is definitely something that I think everyone could learn from. And so, again, the question was how to motivate yourself to do the work when you're in the pit of despair with depression. And also the work, um, I think what they mean by the work is you do that work of self-help and self-love and self-care. This IG account really focuses on, like, we all can heal ourselves and we can be self-healers and we can reprogram ourselves from, like, a lot of the traumatic experience from childhood. And so I think um, that was one of, when I was really, like, you know, really um, motivated and productive, I was also doing the work. And I kind of stepped back from that. And so her, her answer to this was, one, by not expecting motivation. I think I, I shamed myself every day because I wasn't as motivated motivated as I was or as I once was. And so what I had to realize 
was that I shouldn't expect to be motivated, right? Um, It comes when it comes. Um, Another thing that she says is one small ritual daily, every single day, no matter what. So small, it seems insignificant and build the foundation. And so what I say to you and what I took from this is you don't always have to move the mountain. You just have to move towards the mountain every single day and do something every single day to get you towards it. And whether or not that is your your goal is to do the work that you need to do as far as that self-healing or whether or not it's to, you know, a habit or, you know, something you want to, you want to break a habit or you want to start a habit or you want to, whatever you, whatever it is, start small. You don't, you do not have to move the mountain in one day and don't expect to be motivated every day. I think I, I am naturally, I think I'm a very motivated person. And so when I wasn't, I was shaming myself and, 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 you know, that was, that just created a cycle of shaming myself, getting down on myself, not doing it, shaming, you know what I mean? And it's just, don't expect to be motivated every day. Um, but definitely do something and build the foundation. So again, I urge you to definitely, if you're on Instagram, follow the holistic psychologist and also follow me one RTB podcast. Uh, but yeah, up next, we're going to talk about data for black lives. When I tell y'all, it's so much going on with big data that I don't think we really understand what's going on. So yeah, right after the break, data for black lives. Uh, and I miss y'all so much. Okay. What is data for black lives and why is it needed? I think that that's probably one of the questions that I'll get. And one of the questions when I thought about it, I got it because I'm on the advisory board for law for black lives. But I don't know. Now that I think about it, I don't think I really got it. I mean, I understood anything for black lives will always pique my interest. Right. And me being attorney, I don't think I really understood how data was being used. And so when um, I think I heard about, they had a conference back at the end of 17. I heard about it at the end of it. I went on, I looked at the schedule and the agenda and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is stuff that I really want to know and I really want to hear about. And so I signed up for the conference um, in 19 and they had it in January of 19. And so what is Data for Black Lives? Data, Bla- Data for Black Lives is a group of activists, organizers, and mathematicians committed to the mission of using data science to create concrete and measurable change in the lives of black people. Um, the executive director is Yashima Bet, I'm sorry, Milner, and she's the founder and executive director. And she's like this bomb black woman who, you know, during the keynote, she said something that really, really stuck with me. And she said, you are sitting in my vision product of my imagination. And I, I was like writing feverish, feverishly um, to see this black woman up there and, and doing something that, you know, you know, she's a data scientist. I don't know. It just gave me chills. And so, I, y'all, if you please Google her, her name is Yashima Bet uh, Milner and it's Y-E-S H-I-M-A-B-E-I-T, Milner. Um, you can go for D4, go to d4bl.org, and it's Data for Black Lives. But, you know, they kind of started, I think they started, I want to say back in, I want to say 17. I'm not sure the, the exact date in which the organization actually stood up to be an organization. 
But, you know, they are a group of activists, organizers, and mathematicians committed to the mission of using data science to create concrete and measurable change in the lives of black people. And, you know, on the website, it talks about, you know, just since the advent of computing, big data, algorithms, you know, have penetrated virtually every aspect of our lives, social and economic, that these new data systems have tremendous power to empower us, but they also have tremendous power to oppress us. And so one of the big things that we, they talked about in the conference in January was just the abolishing of big data. And what does that mean, right? Well, I, I had to wrap my head around it, but every time we rely on data more than ever now, each of us, we have a computer in our hands and every minute, every second of the day, we're generating some sort of data, whether or not that's our location, whether or not that's what we're saying, who we're talking to, what we're using, what we're searching, all of that is somewhere in a database generated somehow, some way. And that's just the data that we actually use from our phone. What about the data? There's data from, you know, um, housing data. You know what I mean? There is, you know, I, I'm trying to think of all of the, um, the sessions that I went to. But so it was, that was kind of the, the underlying theme, I think, of the, the, the weekend was just how do we abolish big data or how do we ensure that it's not being used to further oppress us? Um, the keynote speaker, she was very good. Her name was Meredith Broussard. And she actually wrote a book called Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. And her her speech was largely centered around a Titanic data set. Um, apparently, that's a data set that's used in um, a lot of data scientists' classrooms and is used to teach. And the data set has um, the passenger class, um, whether or not the passengers survive, the fare in the cabin. And as you can see, no surprise, mostly everyone that surprised um, that survived Titanic were upper class and they were in a certain fare class. And so... You know, first-class passengers of the Titanic survived at a higher rate because they locked the doors for the second-class, um, second and third classes. And so, Miss um, Broussard, Meredith Broussard, talked about an idea called techno chauvinism, and is the belief that technology is always the solution to every problem, and that technology and math are better than people or something that people can come up with. And, and she talked about how techno-chauvinism creates a disconnect between what technology is capable of and what we think it can do. And I really want you to, um, I'll put the link to just um, her talk or her book, because I really think she, she definitely did a good job at showing us that technology is not always right, especially when we have broken systems, right? And so when you have, and I think I'll talk about this more, but I think a lot of people, when they use data to oppress marginalized communities, the argument is always, well, it's data. Statistics show data can't be wrong. Data can't be biased. But when you put, um, I guess, incomplete or maybe biased data into a biased system, you're going to get biased data. 
And I don't think a lot of people realize that. So that was like, that's how, that's how the conversation started. That was the keynote. That was, you know, how it set off the weekend, the agenda. And I was, y'all, I was fired up. Like I was writing feverishly. Um, so the next one, it was, um, a panel on, we are the leaders we have been looking for organizing for algorithmic accountability. And, I hadn't heard the word algorithm for a, a while before this, and I heard the word algorithm a lot this weekend, and I was like, this is taking me back. But, y'all, they using algorithms out here, y'all, to oppress us. Um, all right, so what is an algorithm? And I'm doing, like, the basics because I felt like I needed the basics um, to kind of digest a lot of this. But, you know, an algorithm, the definition is a process or set of rules to be followed in calculations of other problem-solving operations, especially by a computer. And I don't know if we remember, like, from back in the day when you were in school and we did algorithms. Um, I did al algorithms like basic coding in computer science. I remember, like, MS-DOS doing al algorithms there and playing with algorithms. But algorithms, you know, with all of the big data that's generated, it's used to make decisions, really, now. And so... In the panel, they had, you know, the panelists, Teresa Hodge, Joy, um, and I'm sorry, I'm, I don't want to mess up her name, Bola, Bolamwini, Rashida Richardson, and Tamika Lewis. And it was just like a beautiful panel of like black women. And it was just, it, it just redeemed all of the panels I have. It's just, just all white people talking about stuff. And I'm like, where are the black people? But anyway, beautiful plant panel of black women talking about organizing for algorithmic, algorithmic accountability. And one of the things they talked about was that, you know, all algorithms and automated decisions impact our lives every single day. And I'm going to give you examples of how that happens. And then in black communities, they all, they, they animate already existing structures of oppression and inequality. And one of the ways that these are used is risk assessments. Risk assessments tend, tend to be used. So as jurisdictions move away from putting people in cages, right, they are going to, um, they're starting to implement risk assessments to, you know, decide whether or not a person is risky and therefore needs to be in jail or not. And so that decision is often not made by a person. It's made by data. It's made by you know, they'll take the age of a person, you know, the prior convictions of a person, where a person lives, if a person has a job, family members, they take all of that data, they run it, run it through an algorithm, and then they decide whether or not that, if that person is worthy or risky, right? School enrollment algorithms to child predictive analytics. You have the management, the management of healthcare and social services. You have a lot of algorithms and a lot of automated decisions in that area as well. And it just talked about how the impact of these systems expands beyond black and low income communities. And the people, especially the women on this panel, they just talk about how they're fighting against this. Um, and then they also talked about how they can reduce or how we can reduce the harm of these systems, of these automated decision um, these algorithms and automated decisions and how activists and scientists can and actually use algorithms to fight racial, just, racial justice. And I did want to point to, and I'm going to put this in the show notes, but um, Yashima Bet, she, um, the executive director of Data for Black Lives, she talked about 
um, her open letter to Facebook. And this was largely after the scandal that Facebook had as far as the data, um, I think it was Cambridge Analytics, that scandal that Facebook had. And she actually wrote a, an open letter on Medium. And um, it said it had three big things, right? It said, how do we make sure tech companies aren't harming us? Because right now, I think they're harming us. And I think they're, one of the things I do want to focus on is harm doesn't have to be physical violence. We talk about that, and I know I talk about that a lot on this podcast, where harm tends to be someone hitting someone, assaulting someone, murdering someone, killing someone. It doesn't always have to be physical. And we can be harmed, right, by economic, you know, we can be harmed, you know, with data. We can be harmed to where if my choices are limited or if I'm viewed as risky based on data or based on algorithms or based on automated decision-making by a computer, that's harmful to me and my community, right? And one of the things I think that really spoke to me and Yashima Betts' um, open letter to Facebook, and she says, the decision to make every black life count as three-fifths of a person was embedded in electoral college, an algorithm that continues to be the basis of our current democracy. Histories of redlining, segregation, voter disenfranchisement, and state-sanctioned violence have not disappeared but have been codified in disguise through new big data regimes. And so what you'll see more than anything is that people now use data to justify oppressing people. People use data to justify an oppressive policy. And they'll say, well, I'm not biased. The data, that's what the data says. The data says that more black people, you know, that more black people are committing crimes. And so therefore they need to be deemed more risky. The data says that more black children are fighting in schools. So therefore we need police in the schools. The data says, the data says, more likely than not, that's what you always hear, right? But the issue is, one, are the, the raw data that you're coming up with, is that coming out of, you know, does that account for the institutional racism that we all know exists, right? Or the, the, the machine or the data or, data or computer that you put into it or you use to uh, manipulate the data, does that account for the institutional racisms or does that have biases, and so there was a, it was a great conversation on how historically this country used an algorithm, right, to count the number of enslaved black people. And that, the essence of that three-fifths compromise, that th the essence of that mathemat mathematical equation, right, to say that we are less than human, we are less than a person, carried itself, it carries on to this day. It looks differently but it's still there. They're still saying the same thing, right? And so that was one of the things that they talked about um, in that session. Um, also, there was um, a great... I th they also talked about the narrative that technology makes you safer, right? I know a lot of people, my parents have it, a lot of my friends have like these automated doorbells or, you know, you can see it drives me crazy to be around my father because every time someone walks by, by his door, his phone makes a notification because he has it set up to where any movement around his door, his phone will tell him that someone's by his door, right? 
and he's old. He's older. Sorry, Dad. You're older. And so he has a note, a, a ring, a, a, a notification ring for everything, right? It drives me crazy. One of the things they talked about was that Ring, Ring is a company, I think that was just bought, bought by Amazon, has a neighbor's app, right? And the neighbor's ad is, app is a platform for record, reporting crime. And what happens is you can, the, the actual software, not a person, but the software makes it easier for customers to call the cops on suspicious people and activities. I'm going to say that again. Ring makes it easier for customers to call the cops on suspicious people and activities. Now, how does it do that? The actual software will call the cops if they deem, I think you have to like program something, whether or not someone looks suspicious, and they will automatically call the cops. Now, right now, it's only um, in Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, and Ventura Sheriff's Department. But I can tell you that this is not something I think that will benefit the lives of black and brown communities if there is, you have automated calls to police departments. I just, I'm just going to go on a, a, a limb and um, say that's not good for us. Um, there was another session in here, Abolition in the Age of Big Data, in which they talked about Fingerprints, facial recognition, background checks, gang databases, FBI lists, social media surveillance, credit scores, all of that, right, is data. And data has always been central to the expansion of the prison industrial complex, the immigration enforcement industry, and the financialization of our economy. So I'm going to say those things again, because I, I recently got something today about um, the U.S. government will be scanning your face at the, the top 20 airports. But we'll talk about that later. But so you have fingerprints, facial recognition, background checks, gang databases, FBI lists, social media surveillance, credit scores. All of that data has been central to the expansion of systems that further oppress us. And so one of the questions that was, you know, posed during this session was how do we create solutions in our communities to social problems without recourse to prisons, right? And so the same thing, I think they asked the same questions. How do we create solutions without big data? Um, and during this session, they talked about the Chicago gang database, which I was unaware of, but in Chicago and I, and, and, I recently, after the the session in January, after the conference in January, I actually looked this up, and I don't think that Chicago is using the database anymore. But Chicago has or had a gang a gang database of two hundred thousand people. The MacArthur Justice Center sued the city last year on behalf of four young men, three black and one Latino, who said their names were wrongly added to the database. So all told, there were about 200,000 adults and teens, most of them black and Latino, have had their names added to this database, and some, mista some were mistakes, right? Lots of people in the gang database were in their 70s and 80s, and 13 people are supposedly 118 years old. And so I would think, 
if you had a list of names and you're identifying these people as gang members, that you would do your due diligence to make sure that there weren't mistakes in it, that you would do your due diligence to make sure that there weren't people who are 118 in it. Because I guarantee you those people aren't banging. Um, and in the, in the lawsuit that was brought by MacArthur Justice Center, it just talked about how Chicago Police Department disproportionately targeted black and Latinx individuals for inclusion in this database, and that individuals in this database had no due process protections, including any way to, to, to challenge the designation of being called, the designation of being called a gang member. In addition, it talked about how the police uses information to harass and falsely detain people, and that CPD provided inc this incorrect, inconsistent data to third parties, including ICE. And as a result, you had these false gang designations that infect and impacted and affected an individual's ability to get a job, a driver's license, bond, parole, housing, immigration release, and so, relief, and so much more. And so I think that um, as a result of the MacArthur lawsuit, that they stopped using the gang base, and they're supposed to disband it, but I don't know. And that doesn't stop another jurisdiction from doing it as well. Another thing I want to talk about that came out in this session was something called the Perpetual Lineup Report. Uh, this is something I want to say it's out of Georgetown University. It's the Center on Pop Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. And they created a report to talk about um, something that the FBI is doing. Um, and I think it was great. In the executive summary, I'm going to read this because I think it explains just exactly what's happening. So it says, there is a knock on your door. It's the police. There was a robbery in your neighborhood. They have a suspect in custody and an eyewitness, but they need your help. Will you come down to the station to stand in the lineup? Most people will probably say no. However, if you're part of 16 states, your face or your, your, your recognition, your facial likeness is already being scanned, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, this past summer, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, revealed that close to 64 million Americans do not have a say in the matter. 16 states allow the FBI to use face recognition technology to compare the faces of sus suspected criminals to their driver's license and ID photos, virtually creating a virtual lineup of their state residents. In this lineup, it's not a human that points to the suspect. It's an algorithm, right? And, you know, in the executive summary, it says, you know, the FBI is only part of the story. Across the country, state and local police departments are building their own face recognition systems, many of them more advanced than FBI's. And we know very little about these systems. We don't know how they impact privacy and civil liberties. We don't know how they address accuracy problems. And we just talked about the gang database where they had gang bangers that were 118 years old. And we don't know how, if the, how any of these systems, local, state, or otherwise, affect racial and ethnic, ethnic minorities. And in the report, they, just, they talk about, by tapping into driver's license databases, the FBI is using biometrics in a way that's never been done before. 
The FBI has always been known to use, you know, fingerprint and DNA databases, but those databases were primarily made up of people who actually came into, came in contact with the agency, right? You were arrested, so you were, your fingerprints were taken. You were arrested, your DNA, you know, your DNA was taken. But this new, you know, by running face recognition searches against 16 states' driver's license photo databases, they've, the FBI essentially built a biometric network that primarily includes law-abiding citizens. And, you know, in the report, they talk about how this is unprecedented and highly problematic. Um, another thing they talk about is most law, law enforcement agencies do little to ensure their systems are accurate. Face recognition is less accurate than, than fingerprinting, particularly when it's used in real time. Yet um, Georgetown, or I want to say the center, and I'm going to say the center one more time so you all can know them and you can look it up. The Center on Privacy and Technology found that only two agencies, the San Francisco Police Department and Seattle's region South Sound, South Sound 911, conditioned purchase of the technology on accuracy test or threshold. There is a need for testing. Um, one major re face recognition company, Face First, publicly advertises a 95% accuracy rate, but disclaims liability for failing to meet that threshold in contracts with San Diego Associated Governments. And unfortunately, independent accuracy tests are involuntary and infrequent. Another thing that they focus on is police face recognition will disproportionately affect African Americans. That's not a shocker. Now, the reason why um, police, so, you know, we know that facial recognition just generally disproportionately affects African Americans where, you know, just darker complexions and, and, and women's female faces aren't, um, they're not, they don't work as well on darker complexion. Facial recognition technology doesn't work as well on darker complexions and female faces. Um, in an FAQ document, the Seattle Police Department says that its face recognition system does not see race. I don't think they, they should have said that. Whatever. I don't, were they trying to, was that supposed to be a good thing? Yeah. <laughs> Yet an FBI co-authored study suggests that face recognition may be less accurate on black people and also due to disproportionately high arrest rates, systems that rely on mugshot database likely include a disproportionate number of African Americans. And despite these findings, there is no independent testing for racially biased error rates. And so this is another issue of if you have a system that does not account for institutional and systemic racism, you're going to get this. Yet they will continue to use something like that. And right now we just have 16 states and it's no telling how many states we'll have in the coming years. Um, Georgetown law also has something called not ready for takeoff. It's another, um, it's another report. And this report, I'll put the link in the show notes as well. This report actually deals with um, the news article that I received today from BuzzFeed. But this report talks about the Department of Homeland Security is planning to suspend over a billion dollars to scan travelers' faces as they leave the United States. Now, we're going to talk about how they plan on scanning us as we come into the United States. But 
they plan to scan, including Americans, as they leave the United States. Now, why is that a problem, you ask? There's no evidence that that's even fucking necessary, right? That is even necessary. That there's some large-scale problem of people leaving the country, country under false identities, right? And that DHS does not even appear to know how accurate the system will be at catching imposters, which is the primary purpose for doing this in the first place. And so this, I'm going to, this segues into the BuzzFeed news article that I received today about the U.S. government will begin scanning your face at the 20 top airports, right? So in March 2017, President Trump issued an executive order expediting the deployment of biometric verification of the identities of all travelers crossing its borders. And in the executive, um, in the order, it stipulates that facial recognition identification for 100% of all international passengers, including American citizens, in the top 20 U.S. airports by 2021. Now, the DHS is rushing to get these systems up and running at airport, airports across the country. But because it's rushing, it's not doing the proper vetting that's needed. It's not doing the regulatory safeguards that's needed. And actually, a lot of privacy advocates argue it's in defiance of the law. Now, I will say that, yes, the Trump administration issued an executive order, but this is based on a law that was actually brought in during the Obama administration. And so Trump is actually expediting this. So, yeah, so that's all that I think I want to talk about today. I still have more. Um, we, we talked about the 2020 census, um, which has been in the news, and I think I'm going to do a podcast episode on that. Um, and I know we talked about the real ID as well, um, the fact that, you know, this real ID, I know a lot of you have noticed that we're starting to get new IDs, a new driver's license in a lot of states. And, you know, more than half of U.S. adults are now in this database because once you get a real ID, you're actually added to this database. And so I'm going to put that, um, the electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org, I can't remember, but they do great work on just data justice and privacy um, and transparency. They did a good report on that and why that's problematic as well and how we have, you know, this vast national database that's linking all ID records together and that's can't be good. <laughs> Anything that, you know what I mean, it can't be good. But um, I'm going to put that in the show notes. But I did want to stop here only because, you know, I didn't want, there's a lot of information to digest. Um, definitely take a look at the show notes and please go to, you know, these websites and look at the reports because they are very, very eye-opening. Um, and that's, I think that's how we can raise the bar today. You know, now that you are aware that this is going on, um, definitely look into it more. And I will definitely um, try to bring you some more information um, about what I learned from Data for Black Lives Conference. But definitely go to their website, d4bl.org. Um, I'll put a link to um, Yashima Betts' uh, open letter to Facebook because I know a lot of us use Facebook and just talk about what Facebook is doing. I know recently they were in the news for something else as well as far as privacy. But I do think I want us to, yes, technology is convenient. Our phone is convenient, right? It makes a lot of things easier. 
You know, you're able to send money to people. You're able to share memories, share videos, call people. I don't even think we probably use it to call people anymore, right? We're able to connect. We're connected more than ever. But this connectivity, this convenience, this, all of that comes at a price. And believe it or not, black and brown communities will be impacted. They will pay a heavier price. They will pay a bigger price for the convenience. Believe that. Because if a person is able to say, well, the data shows that this is needed, more likely than not, it's going to happen. Um, Because we think that data is neutral. We think that data can't be biased because it's just data. No, garbage in, garbage out. Um, Yeah, so thank y'all for listening. Um, You will hear from me soon, I promise. Stay blessed.